Welcome to the new era of Neighborhood Bible Church. We are now in a two-service era, and you're the ones who are embracing change, coming to the bright and early 9 a.m. How many of you struggled a tiny bit because you've been used to the 10.30? I certainly did. It was dark when I got up, and that's a good thing and an exciting thing. Listen, we decided that two services on a Sunday would be a fun thing, but how much more fun to launch an entire brand new children's ministry on the same day? So we decided to do that, and as many of you know, we've been tracking this, but God really raised up uh, leadership in Gria and Jamie in the area of children's ministry. I want them to raise their hands right now, and if you work, if you leave your hands up, if you serve in children's ministry, would you just raise your hand? I want you to see how many people it takes to put this on. Now, we have some very special people to pray over as we launch this brand new ministry. Leave those hands up, children's, children's workers. It's not you, okay? Put your hands down. We love you. We thank you. We want to acknowledge you. But, but here's the point, okay? If you are a parent, a grandparent, or a caretaker of a child this morning, would you stand to your feet right now? If you are near them, it should be many of you. If you are near them, would you please, if you feel comfortable, lay hands on them. We are going to pray over these parents and grandparents and caretakers as God has charged you with the raising of your kids. So if you're nearby and you feel comfortable, would you lay hands on? And by extension, we'll be praying and lifting up these families to the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we um, are following your lead and God, we're longing to stay close to you and close to your heart. Father, we pray over these parents, grandparents, caretakers of children. We thank you for the reward that the children in their life are to them. We recognize them as a blessing, as a gift. We recognize them, God, that we're stewards of them. They don't belong to us. We don't own them. We acknowledge and freely give them to you. We thank you for entrusting us with not only their physical care and nurture, but their spiritual development and their spiritual training. God, by faith we receive that you have given to us as their parents what they need to be trained up and raised up. We commit to following you and to taking seriously our role as parents in this area. We thank you, God, that you've led our church to a place where we long for the community to come around and support us as we raise our children. And we commit this new era of children's ministry, really, and our church to you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Alright, you can sit back down. Uh, children, you're dismissed to go out that door over there. You're going to follow uh, some different adults and they will give you instruction. For the rest of you, you can open up to the book of James. Uh, a couple quick announcements on children, by the way. If you haven't gotten your long story short devotional tool, that is free of charge and meant as a gift to you to augment what we do here, please get those. Also, um, on our website, all the new things, there's a lot of new information, logistics and whatnot that you need to know about. It's all been updated on the website, so pay attention to that and use that tool. As I mentioned, this is our first Sunday of, uh, not really our first Sunday doing a, two services, but this is the new norm. And one of the things I want to just kind of prepare us for and be thinking about is this. I want to really view empty seats that we see around us and near us. 
I want us to begin to have an eye for those as who, who needs to be sitting in those seats. God's drawn you here this morning to worship. And I tell you, I love coming to worship with this church family. I've absolutely loved doing it and, and look forward to it. And God ministers to me as we sing, as we celebrate communion, as we pray together, as the fellowship goes on, as we, as we sit under teaching. And what we know is that God is so not done with our city yet, and that there are lots of neighbors and lots of people who haven't tasted a crumb of what we get. So I want you to begin to view empty seats, not as, oh, who's here, and all that sort of thing, but be thinking about who's not here. Who are you praying for that needs to be in the seat next to you, in front of you, behind you? And what we're longing for and looking for is we'll allow God to do the growth. What we saw from the parable of the seed and the sowers is that three-quarters of the people, you know, somehow the, the gospel doesn't take root, but cast the seed wildly, cast the invitation wildly um, to be drawing people to Jesus. All right, James chapter 4 is where we're at. I want you to think of this last week, or actually I want you to think of the last time you received a warning. Think about the last warning that you received. I don't know if it was this week, I don't know how far back you need to go, but at some point you received a warning. What was the source of the warning? Okay, just think about where it came from. And then the follow-up question is this, did you heed the warning? Right? Um, This may not be as hard as you think. I drove the hill yesterday, I drove 17. There's a spot, uh, there's many spots that are giving me all kinds of warnings, right, on that road. One is you come from Highway 1 South and you're looping onto Highway 1 North, it says curve sharpens, and it's telling you speeds to go as you go around that speed. That's a warning. I've seen it a hundred times. And sometimes warnings that we see over and over and over, we're, we're kind of blind to it. But chances are you received some sort of warning this week. In James chapter 4, James is really issuing a warning. And what he's doing is he's, he's warning his readers. In the next two weeks, we're going to look at four verses uh, actually, we're going to look at more than that. That's wrong. We're going to look at, at 11 and 12 this week. And James is warning his people because he loves the people. James knows and is watching over his people. Therefore, he is warning them. I don't know if the last warning you received was, some, was from someone that deeply loves you. But James here deeply loves the people that he's writing to. And so he warns them. What it is is this, he sees pride showing up in their lives. He's just exhorted them to submit themselves to God, to be humble before the Lord. And he sees pride showing up in two areas. The first is speaking evil of others and thereby setting themselves over other people. When you, when you judge other people, you're setting yourself over them. That's prideful. And the second thing is going off and making a bunch of plans without including God in the plans. That's going to be next week. And those are both prideful acts. And what James is saying is, is I love you so much that I'm going to warn you of this. Praise God for the Jameses in our life. Not just here in the scriptures, but people who come along and care enough to share. The idea, it's none of your business, is not a Christian idea. It just isn't. Listen to Hebrews. Hebrews 3 says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened to the deceitfulness of, of sin. When sin is present in our lives, we need a truth teller in our life. 
We need someone who's going to come along, love us enough to risk relationship, right, and tell us the truth about that. I think there's precious too few Jameses in our lives. Ephesians 4 reminds us this. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we, all, for we are all parts of the same body. Now what we're going to see here is James is actually going to model what he's teaching by the very words that he uses. Look at James chapter 4 and uh, follow along with me at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James offers uh, four different things to consider. As a Christian, if you are called to be a Christian, some people think faith is all about leaving your brain at the door and just believing on faith. That's a negative, poor perception of what it means to be a Christian, and it's completely not biblical. As a Christian, we're called to be thinkers. We're called to regard things. We're called to consider things. Consider, as we're going to use it this morning, means this. To think carefully about, especially in order to make a decision. Okay? So this passage calls us to consider four things. And if you're taking notes, you can write them down this way. The first is this. How you regard others. This passage is talking about how you regard others. Two really clear and simple instructions. Don't speak evil against each other. We might use the word slander. Don't slander one another. You could insert the word gossip, right? Gossip is a, is a version of that. And the second one is don't be judgmental. Some people think criticism is a spiritual gift when really it's a rampant disease. Don't be critical. Don't be judgmental. So don't slander and don't be judgmental. Those are the instructions that he gives. Now, has James talked about the tongue so far in his letter? The answer is yes. This is what I do to my kids. If, I, if I'm asking them a question and I want to give them the answer, I just nod in advance. Yes, right? Let me just give a quick review. Chapter 1, uh, be, slow, uh, be, be quick to listen and slow to speak, right? That was one of his instructions. Chapter 3, he shows how small bits, rudders, and sparks uh, make, a, make a giant difference. Even though they're a tiny part, they make a huge difference in the world. Uh, he goes on to point that of all the things that we've tamed, harnessed, used for our good, all the technology that we can do, no one's tamed the tongue. It's still out there and rampant. And that's going to be evident today as well as he continues. James isn't even done. He brings up the tongue again here in chapter 4. Here's a preview of chapter 5. Verse 9 says this, Do not grumble, there's your tongue, against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So that's coming in chapter 5. Think the, the tongue is a big deal to James? It is. And the tongue is a big deal to us as well. Now, slander is the opposite of what we want in our families. And just as you and I care about how our kids treat one another, just as we care about as a boss maybe how the office treats one another and the climate that's, that's there, so God cares about how his children treat one another. And to slander and criticize and be judgmental is exactly opposite of what we would call a healthy home and a healthy family. I would challenge you. You don't have to be the parent even to, to, to do this. 
But I would challenge you to call this out in your home. I don't care what your living situation is. You could be in a dorm room. You could be in a, in a family house. You could be uh, with just a roommate. But call this out in your home. Don't let this settle into the normal routine of things that people just jump all over each other's mistakes. We do that in our house. We call out that that is not the expectation of how you talk to a sibling, to a family member. There's plenty of slander and criticism and gossip outside the home, right? When you come home, and church ought to be this way, by the way. That it ought to be a place we could let our guard down. It ought to be a place we could let our hair down. And then someone is going to come and just trample over every little nuanced mistake that goes on. I'll tell you where this goes on a lot just by the developmental nature of people is junior high ministry. Junior high ministry, you get junior hires together, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an ability, there's, a, there's a, you know, a testing that goes on of just slamming each other, cutting each other, back and forth, nitpicking each other. I love a youth group that says, man, it, it really matters that we don't talk to each other that way. You get that all day long at school. Don't bring that into the house. Don't, that, don't bring that into the church family. Although that's the accepted norm, that's not how we do things. Galatians 5.15 says this, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now we have a little two-year-old that has taken to biting the family members. And he's not necessarily doing it in anger. Um, I think he's just hungry. He's really hungry all the time. And kind of like a shark, it's an exploratory bite of some sort. For whatever reason, Mom and Briley are the ones that, that he likes the flavor of the best. Um, but he's going around biting each other. And, and it's this verse. I mean, clearly not what it's talking about. But I see it. I'm like, eh, Galatians 5. It's true. Um, the reality is this, though. A bite hurts. Man, we've had a couple of our kids come with bite marks. And we're trying to train up our child in the way they should go, which is not to eat people. Just kind of fundamental in our home. And yet, the wounds inflicted from a bite I mean, don't those heal up better and quicker than the wounds that can be inflicted just by, by defamation, by slander, by being judgmental and critical? Some of you know what it is to live with someone who is nonstop judgmental and critical. It's exhausting. The sound of that voice coming up in your mind probably, it just, it just immediately puts you on guard. Again, if that's now in your home, the very place where you should be able to rest and relax and recharge and regroup, you're on edge with that. Maybe some in this room really struggle with that. This passage is crying out to you, saying, wake up to this. This is sin. James is a truth teller in your life. Stop it! It's ugly and it's destructive and it's prideful. All right, that brings us to our cowboy's dumb for the week, and that is this. Only a vulture feeds on his friends, okay? So don't eat your friends, right? And again, this is true in the church family as much as it is in your home family. Now, isn't it true that judging and weighing in has become a national pastime? I mean, it's almost an obsession, Every show knows that social media, they, they have to be in social media and somehow. So everyone, it's just a crazy how many people are like, you can Twitter in your response. You can, you know, you can text in your input. I really don't care what Sally from Idaho thinks about the football game. I really don't. I, I don't know Sally from Idaho, and I really don't care about her opinion. But somehow people know that now they feel a part if they can weigh in. Depending on your era, 
uh, you may have heard of Judge Judy or Judge Wapner, okay? There's probably ones that go back further than that, but I'm a child of the 70s, so that's as far back as I go. Uh, right now, here are some shows. I don't know if you watch them or not, but these are shows, all of which that have judges and, and feed on this idea of something going on and a panel of people judging them, okay? Here they are. X Factor, So You Think You Can Dance, American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, America's Got Talent. There's probably others I've forgotten, but I just did a quick scan. These are all over the networks almost every night of the week. And the basic premise is someone's up there doing something and someone else is judging. And by default, what happens is people, people get roped into that and they begin to be the expert judging as well, jumping in on it. It seems as though the art of judging and watching others be judged is quite entertaining to us. Again, these are hit shows, so a lot of people are, are, are watching this. Now, here's what's interesting. A few of you this morning might be silently auditioning for a future reality show called Preach It, Man. And what it is is this. A guy gets up, and he gets up, and he preaches a three-minute sermon, and you as the judge get to sit, and you get to, you get to debate and dialogue about his delivery, about the power, about the use of Scripture, and all of that. This goes on every single Sunday morning. Doesn't it? Come on, it does. You're like, see, I'm already taking demerits because you asked that question twice. Now, here's the thing, though. What James is saying is this, when you're doing that, when you're doing that, you are placing yourself above whatever you're judging, saying, I have a, a, a position of authority, I have a vantage point that, that will do this. And so instead of walking away saying, here's what, here's what the book told me, here's what God told me, no matter how good or bad the preacher, someone told me long ago, if someone is standing up in front and they open up the Bible and they start to teach, I don't care if it's a first-year Bible college dropout, you get your pen out, you get a piece of paper out, and you start taking notes because God's Word is opened up. Now, if I get up here to preach, and this is what you see, week after week after week, here's what I'll give you the freedom to do every single time. Leave your pen on your lap, and don't take many notes. Because now it's just me up here sharing my opinion, sharing my thoughts, giving my input, and, and sharing a few little cute stories that I lifted off of a Hallmark card or something, and, and then you walk away feeling happy, warm, or sad, or whatever I, I desire. Okay? Now, there's times, though, and again, I would invite myself open to this. I would invite myself for you to be a truth teller to me. And some of you have been. I really, really appreciate that. Just that, that, the, that the Word of God is open. And when the word of God is open, that, that we're not sitting in judgment over how it was delivered, whether it suited our taste and all that sort of thing, but rather, God, what do you want me to do from this? Sometimes, praise God, he has allowed people to get the message in spite of my incredibly weak delivery. It's just the truth. I, I know that's the truth. Sometimes I have received a message from the Lord from a really poorly executed worship song. As a worship leader, I have to take that hat off and say, I'm not here as the band leader who needs to tighten up that part of the bridge. I'm here as a worshiper. So God, just let me worship you this morning. That's a prayer that I pray sometimes when I'm sitting in the seats. If I find myself doing that, God, would you just release me of that? I can't change anything right now anyways. Just, just help me to, to, to receive this morning instead of be a judge of something. Here's the deeper question. What is feeding this? What is, what is the draw of all of these kind of judge shows and sharing your opinion things? I mean, what is that getting at? I think that these verses 
um, give us some kind of a clue for that. It kind of starts to draw out some of, the, some of the deeper things. I have a hunch that this affects how we interact with each other. I think that this, some of these shows, I'm sure that affects personal uh, relationships. And, um, and just this, this desire that's fed about loving to judge, loving to share our opinion, loving to weigh in. What happens when you turn the tables on that? How many of you like to be judged? You don't. We love to judge. We hate being judged, right? The title of this morning's message is lifted right out of verse 12. Who are you to judge? Usually that's said this way. Who are you to judge, right? It's like, get off my back, man. You don't know my story. It's a defense mechanism. This was beautiful on early seasons of American Idol when when a contestant is singing and they sound like a cat with their tail being pulled. It's just terrible. And, and this person had been told all their life what a great singer they were by all their families and by their vocal coach who was getting a lot of money, evidently. And one of the judges named Simon said, you're lousy. He said it worse than with a British accent, but he basically told them how lousy this person was. And this person was so shocked, they just said, who are you to judge? And he laughs. He goes, well, I'm the judge. <laughs> You know, like, uh, and, and it's so foreign. It's, it's like that's, that's this end-all statement, right, of let's take it off of this and who are you to judge. That's, that's the normal mode of that kind of a statement. Here's the beautiful thing. Because of Jesus, we are now capable of the love and the support and the care that marks a great family. Do you know what the first step is to being healed of, a, of, of being a slanderer or a gossip or a critic of others? You might think it's to seal your lips. It's not. The first thing is in the mind. It's to change your mind about other people. How do you regard other people? There are times we've just sat down as a family and said, look, we're family. This is who God gave to us to be family. Look, we're a church body. This is who we are. And to start thinking that way. And to be reminded that way. And to regard and consider and to choose to remember truths about your family before you open your mouth. Now, the second part is seal your lips, right? There's another action point, and that's just to stop speaking. But it really starts in the mind. Because what's fascinating is you could be mute. You could be a raging slanderer and being a, a judgmental person, right? Because it's a pride issue. You're setting yourself over that, over that people, and you just think. Maybe you just have more control over your tongue, but you're thinking all the time about all the different ways that, that they're not getting it right. So there it is. A uh, quick side note. The word judgmental um, used in this passage uh, refers to evaluation, or refers not to evaluation, as in making a judgment call, but rather condemnation. And that is what James is prohibiting. So when you make a judgment, there's different judgments you make. Here's what's fascinating. Some people say uh, that, that we're not to judge one another. Does the Bible say we're not to, 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 to judge one another? Yes, it does. Does the Bible also say we should judge one another? Yes, it does. So then we have to go a little bit deeper with that. We say, well, what does that exactly mean? The people who would use this passage to ban all judgment and all evaluation actually contradicts what this passage is teaching. What is James doing if not making an evaluation? 
I see pride in you. Stop slandering. Stop, stop being a critic. You're setting yourself up over people. That's all a judgment. So this passage can't be used to mean to teach that we should never make a judgment call. We should never make an evaluation. What he's, con- what he's, what he's saying to stop is to, is to not condemn. Stop your condemning words to, to one another. And that's where he points to the one judge, which we'll get to momentarily. Let me share with you at least three legitimate judgings that should be going on. Actually, I'll give you four. The first is yourself. Many times we're, we're told to examine ourselves. You know what you're doing? You're making an evaluation about yourself. Every time you open God's word, you ought to say, God, would you just help, help me see my blind spots? Help me see where I don't measure up. Would you help fill me in those parts I've forgotten, that I'm a chosen child of yours, that I'm a new creation, that, that, that Ben uh, reminded us of this morning, that all things are made new, that I'm a child of light, that I'm, that I'm headed for a great reward. Would you remind me of those kinds of things? Those are self-evaluations, right? Self-judgments. Here's another judgment. Pastors and elders in the church, just like James is doing, he's writing to a group of people. He's making a judgment. That's a God-ordained evaluation call. He's He's not the final judge. He's not condemning them, but he's making a judgment. Parents in the home is another one. Governments set up by God, that's another one. What about evil governments? What about non-Christian governments? Here's the, here's the line you can draw, okay? Kids, this goes for parents, uh, in the home, in church leadership, in government leadership. Here's the line you can draw. Unless it violates a clear command of Scripture, you submit to it as an authority set up by God. Once it violates that, you have biblical grounds to say, I, I can, I, my track record should show. I've submitted in every other thing, even if I don't agree with it, because I recognize head-subordinate relationships set up by Scripture, but I can't do this. Here's a great example, Daniel. If the government ever tells you to stop praying, you fling the window open and you pray like you normally do. You sit at a restaurant, you bow your head and pray like you normally do. You don't ever stop talking to God. Clear? That's the line. Everything else uh, we, we recognize as legitimate in, in those ways. Now, let me move on. Point number two. Um, Sometimes you open the Bible and you say, what is the Bible about? I have all kinds of people come to me sometimes and go, it's hard to read the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. What's it about? How do I study? Let me show you something. Here's a little side note. Here's our passage today, okay? When you're studying scripture, you look for repeating words, okay? When you see repeating words, they're kind of important, right? Now, just from this morning, what two words might you do a word study on? If you were looking at just these two verses, what two words might you look at? For those of you listening, and this makes no sense, we see that judge and law show up a ton of times, right? So you would look at that and say, I think those words have a lot to do with what James is trying to communicate. The second thing to consider in this passage is how do you regard the law? How are you to regard the law? Now, some sin is so prevalent and so common that it actually becomes invisible or even accepted. We talked about favoritism a few weeks ago. Remember that? Remember what an evil James says? That ought not be amongst you. We see that out there. Don't you dare treat rich people and poor people different when they walk into your assembly. That reveals an unredeemed heart. That reveals an understanding. You don't have a clue about grace and the gospel and where you all stand. Your values are set up like the world system. Don't bring that in here. This is another one of those sins. Slander and being judgmental 
I think it fits right into favoritism. I think it's accepted in our culture. I think people look the other way. I think people are so numb to it that it's just, it's, it's entertainment, it's sport to actually engage in these things. And here's James calling it sin. Maybe these sins are so destructive because they seem so benign. And yet here's James saying, this is a really big deal. I'm going to call it out in you. Now, when you disregard the law, you are standing over it, right? Uh, William, what does it mean to diss someone on your campus? Burn them. We're, we're, all just, we're just learning junior high lingo. Keep going. Insulting them really bad. Burning them. He's on a roll now. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's the sport, right? It's like judo. You come at me with an insult, I'm going to take that and throw it back on you. You know, bounces off me, sticks on you, whatever. You know, little, little sayings that are going on. But to diss someone is to disrespect them. To disregard the law is to diss the law, okay, in, in junior high vernacular. Now, when you disregard the law, you're standing over it. Here's what you're saying. I know better than the law. You might even be saying, I am better than the law. I'm too good for that. That's for the common folk. I'm not common. I'm not putting myself under it. It's a very prideful stance. To, to do that. Several years ago, uh, I would take college students to Disneyland. It's a great job. And I would go with them year after year. We'd take a lot of international students. We'd bring our, our, uh, our American students. And we'd go down and just have an incredible time over Martin Luther Week, uh, King weekend and just go down to, to, uh, to Disneyland for a day. And so I would gather them. And, and oftentimes, our, one year in particular, I said this rule. I said, okay, you know, everyone can kind of go off. This is the beginning of the day. I said, but at 5 o'clock, everyone checks in right here at the front entrance of Disneyland. Um, and I said it this way. And this means all of you with no exceptions. Now, let's just see kind of how smart we are and who's listening. Travis, did you, were, I don't want to embarrass you. Were you just listening to what I was saying? Okay, what does that rule mean? What does that mean to you? You're about to go off to Disneyland. What, what should you do to obey that rule? Fit as many rides as you can. And then what? In that appropriate, thank you, that's the better. I know where you live, son. Uh, in that appropriate time. And then where should you be at 5 o'clock? Back at the gate. You're just checking in. This is just so Dave can assure the parents that, you know, before we head into the nighttime thing, even college students were all there. Everyone was accounted for, all of that, right? Now, why did I say it this way? This means all of you with no exceptions. Why did I add that? Tell me. Parents, you know the answer to this. Because there's always some kid, right? Some of you are that kid. You're like, I know why, but I'm not going to raise my hand. I added that because the previous year, I didn't say that. I said, everyone check in at 5 o'clock right here, and then, and then just two minutes. I'll be standing here. I just want to make sure everyone's alive and well, and then you can go off to, to do things. You know what happened? It only takes three. Three people thought they were the exception to the rule. You know who stood around the front gate watching people take pictures of that silly castle for about an hour and a half? Ding! Far more than, than my wasted time at Disneyland. I don't really care about that. Far more than that was just this. It was this notion that we, we thought we were above that rule. You know what? I felt disrespected. I felt disrespected. I felt like, you know, everyone got it. But you three were the exception? I mean, we're dealing with college students here, people. You can make it to the start of a movie on time. I know you know that drill. 
you get to class for the most part on time. And, and then oftentimes when we come walking up, well, I thought, right? But, 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 but I didn't think you meant, and, and the excuses just started to flow. So that was the year before. So this year, what I add is no exceptions. This means you. And I went like I'm doing now to every eyeball and made sure people understood it. When we disregard the law, we are putting ourselves over the law, and it's a prideful place to be. Do you take the position of being a judge of the law or a doer of the law? That's the fundamental question that James is talking about. James said earlier, don't just hear the law, do it. Remember that? Here he's saying, don't judge the law, do it. You can't be both. If you're sitting over it, opining on all of why it's a good or bad law, you're not obeying it. When we walk out of a church service, and, and on a positive sense, you're like, wow, you know, it was these different things, and you're walking away as a judge, rather than walking away of saying, what is God calling me to do out of this? Then, then we're in that place. Who are you really criticizing and grumbling against when we talk about the law? James, by the way, earlier talks about the royal law. If you are fulfilling the royal law, well, what's the royal law? The royal law has to do with, with really, Jesus put it into, into two things. What's the first one? Love God, right? That's, that's, that's the first one. The second one's like it, love people. He used a few more words, but that's the essence of it. Read the Ten Commandments and just find that that is an articulation of love. That's all that is. When it says not to commit adultery, that says that love is pure and, it's, and it's, it's in total fidelity and faithfulness. When it says not to covet, it says that love is, is content and love is trusting with the Father that's going to provide. So every one of the Ten Commandments points back to love, to fulfilling the royal law. So when you are criticizing and grumbling against the law, you are really criticizing and grumbling against the lawgiver. That's number three. How do you regard God? This passage is calling out what you think of the lawgiver. I want you to look at this picture for a minute. It's always hard whenever I'm putting up a picture for God. What do you put for a picture for God? You might look at this and think that's kind of a strange picture for God. Some steps and an impressive-looking column. It might be weird until you consider God as the one and only lawgiver and judge. When we place God in that rightful position, it begins to make sense as to why we would have that picture up. Imagine walking up the steps of the Supreme Court to hear a trial regarding your defamation case. You're walking up, it would be pretty intense, I would imagine. And it's intense because you realize that there are people there that are in authority that are going to make a decision that's going to dramatically affect your life. Well, then turn that to God, who really is the highest court in the land. And think about the fact that as we defame and as we place ourselves as little judges, there is one who really can and has the authority to render salvation or destruction. You ever despise a rule, convinced that it had no merit and was only in place to harm you or take your fun, only to realize later on, because you gained perspective, because you became a parent, because more facts came onto the scene, 
only to realize that, wow, that law was for my good. And then you thought either, man, I'm so glad that I submitted to it, even though I didn't get it, or you have to humbly repent and say, I was such a fool to pull away and resist that rule and that law when it was really only only meant for my good. Ben brought up this idea of all things being new, the old passing away. Aren't you looking forward to a fresh perspective? I can't wait till the end of the age where, where the rules and laws and the ways that God did things are going to begin to make more sense. I believe there's going to be learning and growth in heaven. I think that's part of the beauty of how God wired us. And what a beautiful thing to be, to be learning and going, oh, like having all these aha moments. God, I hated that rule. I didn't understand that one. And here it is. We see such, wow. I mean, what praise and glory will, will, will be bestowed on God for his enormous love as we see more and more outside the, the picture of us living under the sun, so to speak, and as we see more fully what God was doing. Don't slander may seem like a silly rule. It may seem like a harmless rule. It may be like a silly thing to have a whole sermon about and get uptight about. But let me just point out two things that we know. One is this, that the Bible speaks often, loud, and clearly on this topic. Ready? You can write these down if you'd like. Leviticus 19.16 says this, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. I am the Lord. When he's adding, I am the Lord, that's like Dad says so. It's emphatic. Don't do this. The mark of the godly one in Psalm 15.3 is one who does not slander with his tongue. The mark of the wicked in Psalm 50, 19 to 20, Jeremiah 6, 28, Romans 1, 30, those are just a few, is that they are slanderers. In fact, in Romans it says, a slanderer, a hater of God. No one thinks Christians should be haters of God, but I think a lot of Christians think, ah, it's okay though if they slip up with their tongue and gossip a little bit or speak evil of one another. Proverbs 20, 19 says this, a gossip goes around telling secrets. So don't hang around with chatterers. If you insult your father or mother, your light will be snuffed out in total darkness. It's a big deal, the words we speak. And Jesus declared that it defiles you in Matthew 15, 20. The religious folks had it all turned around of what defiled and what you put into your body. Jesus said, no, 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 it's these words. It's a slander that defiles you. So not only does the Bible speak loud and clear on it, the Bible also says clearly that slander is harmful to your health. Firstly, it destroys friendships. Proverbs 16, 28 says this, a dishonest man spreads strife. That's being judgmental and critical. And a whisperer separates close friends. We know from Proverbs 18 and Proverbs 26, it inflicts deep wounds. Some of you could just nod your head in testimony to that. Yes, it does. It also stirs up fighting. Proverbs 26, 20. It spreads strife. Proverbs 6, 19. And Proverbs 10.18 says this, whoever utters slander is a fool. Lots of examples in the scriptures where slander led to war. Lest you think that was yesteryear. I don't know if you've watched the news much. But there's some foolish slander that's gone on. And some protests that have gone now well beyond just the Middle East. Now, I know that with the attack this week on the U.S. Embassy in Libya, the flesh in all of us as American wants to exact revenge and make people pay. I want to point your attention to something here. 
I hope this image stirs up some of the things that, that maybe as you've watched and read news stories, how is a Christian to respond to this? How are we to think about this? What does this all mean? Let me just say this. If you're wondering, how do I know if it's slander or truth-telling? Um, because didn't Jesus stir up strife with his words? The answer is, there was a lot of strife that was stirred up by Jesus' words. He wasn't just a benign country folk teacher that kind of said a few flowery things. It ultimately got him killed. Didn't he call names? Whitewashed tombs? Brood of vipers? Right? Is it slander or is it truth-telling? Here it is. Here's the answer. When words are spoken, here it is. Truthfully and to build up, then they're within bounds. If they're spoken truthfully, but they don't build up, it can stir up strife. Just unneeded hatred, wars, all kinds of things. If you say you're building it up, but it's false, you're so awesome, boss. You're the man. You're so great. He's a jerk, right? That's not godly. That's, that never came out of Jesus' mouth. Truthfully and building up, it's in bounds. Everything else is sin. Here's the reality. Jesus made enemies by lovingly making truth claims and calling people out of their sin. Why did he call them whitewashed tomb? To wake them out of their sin. To call attention to the fact that do not follow these blind guides. He was telling the truth and he was ultimately building them up. Jesus made enemies by making truth claims, but Jesus also blessed enemies when they reacted against those claims with murderous threats, name-calling. We were listening to some scripture yesterday, and people pipe up and go, You Samaritan devil! That's a name-calling. So when he was, when he was responded to with murderous threats, name-calling, physical attacks and abuse, and even being executed, what did Jesus do? poured out blessing. He blessed his enemies. Didn't curse them. Didn't exact revenge. Didn't call down judgment on them. Right then. The sin of slander is no trivial matter. It is reckless treason against the judge, the one and only judge and lawgiver. There's no room on his bench for anyone else, and I don't think he's inviting any of us up there. So don't put yourself up above God. Every time we stand in judgment of the law, we are committing the sin of Satan who sought unsuccessfully to dethrone God. Remember that? In the book of Isaiah, there's five I wills. I will this, I will that, I will this, I will that. It's Satan putting himself on the bench, judging better than God. All right, number four is how do we regard ourselves? Back to James's question, who are you to judge? Slander is the very opposite of the humility that he called for in previous passages. There's no submission in slander and being a judge. There is no getting low. There's no meekness. There's no acknowledgement of need. There's only, I have a perspective that the, jo- that the, the lawmakers didn't have, and so I will sit in judgment on it. Slander and critical words reveal an inflated view of the self. Romans 12.3 says this, For by grace... For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you see there that we're to think with sober judgment? Don't hear, don't walk out of here, and the second anyone comes into you, the second your community group 
meekly comes and says, Brother, it really pains me to say this. But I, I've just got to take, take exception to your words and, and let's talk this through. Don't judge me! If you find yourself doing that, you're, 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 in, a, you're in a place of just, of just barrier. And that's not what this is teaching. But rather with sober judgment were to think and make evaluations, not condemnations. And who are you to judge? I'd say this. Start with yourself. Start with yourself to see if you're judgmental. Jesus essentially said what moms around the world say, which is worry about yourself, right? There's a lot of times where someone comes and wants to say, and in our household growing up, it was constantly, worry about yourself. You can always tell what the moms say because the kids say it to each other. As soon as someone says, worry about yourself, you know, you're like, there's a little momism that comes, uh, you know, squeaking out. Jesus told a story about a giant plank in one eye and a speck in another eye. You know what he's saying? Worry about yourself. Get that heaving log out of your eye, then maybe you'll be able to come and, and be a, you know, a gentle uh, helper to that person with, with, a, with a speck. I want to close with one final consideration. In the movie Ratatouille, we had uh, Anton Ego who said this. I thought it was so well, so well said. The bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. He goes on to talk about, as a critic, you don't risk anything. You're not really creating anything. But the critics will come and, and, and criticize and talk and judge. From a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the tongue, I want to just let these images land on you. Here are just a few scriptures about what a twisted tongue does, what a forked tongue does, and all the different ways we can use it poorly. I want every curse word you hear this week, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably hear a curse word on a, on a weekly basis, if not daily or hourly basis. Let every curse word remind you of the curse. And if curse words slip out of your mouth, if curse words come pouring out of your mouth, repent. Flattering, proud, deceitful, perverted, destructive, wicked, and slanderings, this tongue of ours. The sin is so readily accessible because our tongue is with us wherever we go. So easy to let these things slip out. Pray for healing. Pray for grace. Pray for a changed, redeemed, tamed tongue. Now praise God who, while reviled, beaten, maligned, and accused, Poured out blessing and forgiveness in the very act. Note that Jesus isn't just our model to follow. He's the power we have and the hope we have of changing our mouth, of changing our speech. Jesus genuinely loved his enemies. That's why words followed. Pray that God would change your heart, change your mind about people. I'll leave you with this picture. These are truthful tongues. Don't be a vulture and devour your family. Band, if you can come on up. We're going to close singing a couple of songs. And this first song we're going to sing talks about the idea that the people you're slandering, the, the people you're speaking evil against, need the same thing you do. They need compassion. They need understanding. They need someone to come alongside and walk with them for a mile in their shoes also talks, this song does, about submission, about our own yielding. If we get a firm grasp of Ephesians 2, verse 8, 
I think it will wash away a lot of our impetus, a lot of our motive for speaking in some poor ways. It says this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Praise God and amen to that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that before you we recognize and are released from having to lift ourselves up and build ourselves up. We thank you, God, that you've told us to become like little children in these things. To be humble and to be submissive and to to clearly recognize our need. I pray in this specific area of speaking evil about one another and being judgmental of one another, God, that you would guard our congregation from being that. Would you bring people into our midst that will test our love for you, that will test our tongue, that are different from us, God? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, God, that we would see them as a child of God, as a person created in your image. No matter how they come in, no matter how they come dressed, no matter how they sound or smell or look like. God, we need you in this. We thank you for looking past our exterior. We thank you, God, for healing and touching us in our deepest place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a part of our response this morning, uh, we're going to take up the offering uh, within this, this next section of songs. So let that be part of your worship as we sing.